death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. My name is Marilyn Netta. Um, I am a trauma counsellor. I work um, at the Matisse Centre as a trauma counsellor with families and particularly young children from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Um, I've been doing this sort of work for the last 20 years. Um, I also work for a not-for-profit organisation, Metamorphosis, um, and our focus is really working with children and young people from refugee backgrounds who are also stateless and providing access to education. So I guess I work um, with trauma a lot. That's my bread and butter. I have been really interested and fascinated and also engaged with death and dying for a very long time, since I was very, very young. As you were growing up, death and dying was very much part of the, you know, the whole environment. What do you mean by that? I grew up uh, with a mum who, um, I guess I would, that she she had a lot of trauma. My mum was a very traumatised woman. Um, she was um, given away as a baby and was terribly abused. And so growing up with mum, and we probably now know that she had um, sort of depression throughout her life, and a very common theme in my mum's stories and, and um, storytelling, she was an amazing storyteller. So we grew up with stories, you know, really imbued with stories. And dying was a big part of mom's story. She was always talking about, you know, when she dies and she had always planned her death and how she wanted to die. Um, and really quite fascinated. It was only later on when I became an adult and I trained to be a counselor that I understood that a lot of her um, narratives around death and dying were um, very, very much impacted by her experience of trauma. And, um, yeah, so I sort of grew up with a lot of that. And then I guess when I was a teenager, I encountered Buddhism and some of the Buddhist teachings around life as, as, a, as a sort of a meditation on, on death and, and the relationship um, around um, how we live our life and, and how death is imminent and it's, it's, um, it's unpredictable. So do you think within your cultural context, your Chinese, Malay, and do you think within that cultural context, speaking about death is part and parcel of life? Or was that really quite an uncommon thing and it was just something that you grew up with because you had a mum who'd gone through trauma? You know, people have big events and, and celebrations and festivals around death um, and... I guess that's also the visibility of it. And with mom, I guess she often um, talk about death as with 
I think a lot of people who um, experiencing depression and, and trauma often death appear to be an escaped somewhere better than the living. And I think that's a big part of my mother's story and growing up. And I, I found mom's sort of preparation for death. You know, she, she bought um, her bureau um, plot decades ago. <laughs> and she had really given us very clear instructions on how to manage her death and, you know, her afterlife. And that is quite unusual because I think in a lot of um, Chinese culture, death is sort of quite a taboo topic. As much as it is visible, I think people are, I think fear of death is is common in all cultures. And I think it's definitely in, in the Malaysian Chinese culture where death is obviously something that people are afraid of. Um, but there's also huge preparation, you know, uh, around you know, people wanting to be buried together. Um, so the preparation around that, the rituals around that, I think those are really, um, I'm only sort of beginning to really appreciate and how much those rituals are important in, in grieving, you know, in, in helping us grieve uh, when we do lose someone. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, the experience that you went through with mum at the end of her life, because in some ways um, that, that again was relatively an uncommon experience um, and something very much that she wanted. Mm. Yeah. So about five, five years ago, um, so my mom lives in, in Malaysia and so my sister and I live in Perth and then I've got a second sister who live in, in Malaysia as well. And we just got a call um, one day from a friend of my mother's uh, to say that mum is in hospital. She had had a suspected um, heart attack and she was unconscious. And so my sister and I flew, flew back. We took the first flight back um, to Singapore and then and got a taxi through to the causeway to, to Johor Bahru, which is where mum was living. And we got to the hospital and mum was unconscious um, and it was obviously very sudden, um, but mum had a, an ongoing um, sort of a long-term issue with high blood pressure and high cholesterol, which she self-medicated. Um, and it took a few days for us to get, um, and mom was in a public hospital system, which was, um, which makes things a bit complicated. And so they, they suspected heart attack, but it took about three days before they could scan her brain to realize that she's had a massive stroke, massive hemorrhage in, in the brain. And the prospect of her coming back to consciousness was really, really minimal. And mom had always left very clear instruction on how she does not want to be left in a vegetative state. Uh, Mom is a very, very strong, um, powerful woman. And she's, she's left the instruction with me. And it's after her death that my older sister and I have had conversation about um, 
why mom had left me with the the task of of um, how she was going to die. Um, because I guess in some level she knew that I was going to be the only one who could do it. So we were in that situation. We had to wait and mom was left in that state for 12 days. And every single one of that 12 days, I had mom next to my ear saying, remember what I take to you. <laughs> and even if mom hadn't left the instruction, knowing who mom is, just that would be um, a very, very distressing place to be. But we had to, and this is part of the context of the Malaysian Chinese culture is where, where people in that state are left in the vegetative state for years. And that's a part of people not wanting to let go. And that's in a really strange way, but also understandable way, how they show love is they want to prolong life for as long as possible. And that might be the wishes for some people. That is definitely not mom's wishes. So that was very clear. But we had to uh, make sure that everybody came to say goodbye and that we had to make sure that we had convinced everybody that everything had been done and there's no no way out. Um, so that was a very, very interesting process to witness and also to navigate so were you ever asked by the hospital authorities to consider switching off the machines? No. So Malaysia doesn't have, they don't have euthanasia. They don't have laws around that. So I, for the days leading up to the end, I had close communication with the, the doctor and I was told very clearly that this is against the law. We cannot do that. But um, I then realized that I had to advocate for mom and saying that I am not going to leave her in this situation. This is against her wish and that we need to let her go. So she was on oxygen and the doctor eventually came to me and said, look, we can't do it because it's against the law. Um, but if you feel that it's time to let her go, you are going to have to be the person to take the oxygen mask off. And we will give you some private space to do that. How did that feel to be in control? I mean, you know, in one way you can say that, you know, theoretically you think you can do that and that that's mum's wishes, but to physically actually be the person who does that. It was, um, I mean, it's, it's emotional just even thinking about that. Um, it, it's, it's heart-wrenching. It was sort of a whole mix of feeling that I am the person who is going to be ultimately ending mom's life. But what was even clearer, more powerful, was that I was doing the right thing and there was no doubt around that. And and once I sort of come to that, that moment, I felt this sense of calm. I felt a sense of relief and grief and sadness and um, but the relief was palpable. Um, and then we had, I can't remember how many hours then, and just sort of sat with mum and everyone had their turn um, to say goodbye and to be there with mum. 
you know, until she took her last breath. It was quite a few hours later. Um, and she had sort of, you know, she was made comfortable. She had morphine to, to um, make that last few hours and moments comfortable. So we knew that she was okay. But you did have family members come and say goodbye. They knew what you were going to do. What was the reaction of other family members? Were they supportive? I think so. I think I think they knew that I had um, I had the authority. I don't know what that's the right word to to make decisions for her. And but I did sit everyone down and I did talk to them about mom's wishes and about how. Mum would have hated every day of those 12 days being left in it. And I think I guess I reminded them what who mum was and what was important to her. And I think that really helped. Um, it was also, of course, really heartbreaking and, and very sad. But I think um, yeah, we everyone found peace because we knew what she would have wanted. I think that was very clear. Um, yeah. Did you did you feel her presence at that stage? Yes, I think it was like she was there, but she was sort of in the corner of the room. <laughs> like I, I knew that at some point she wasn't there in the body anymore. That was just, just a physical form. Um, but mom was always with me. Mom is still with me. And her presence, she's got a larger than life personality. Um, and that I know that it's always going to be there. In fact, it's probably stronger since her passing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have a, a photo of her um, in a sort of a little mini altar that I light a candle for her every morning, every night. And so she's very much present in, in my life. So you've talked before about the importance of rituals and uh, you know anniversaries and how important that is. You're coming up to Mum's fifth anniversary. Yes, very that's soon, right. yes. sometime yeah. this month. Um, yeah. You know, describe to me how you feel now, five years later. I feel a sense of um, blessing. Actually, I feel very blessed to have had the life that we've had with Mum. Um, I did my PhD thesis on my mother's life. And I feel that I really understood and know the person that she was. Um, and that is a really, really beautiful gift. And I think that knowing her and knowing her so intimately has really helped um, in my grief but also I feel like I was able to bring her so intimately close to me. And it's the same thing with my sister and my kids. They've had such a beautiful relationship with her. And I feel that five years on, we um, it's, a, it's a new face I guess in a way and I've actually been talking to my sister about because mom was an extraordinary cook amazing cook and so I thought well I think what I really would love to do for her is to do um, 
like a cookbook, but not quite a cookbook, but it's a, it's a story of, of the heritage and, and the stories around all the dishes that she's created and crafted over the years. Um, so we really want my sister and I, and hopefully the kids as well, come on a, on a road trip back to her hometown through, um, through Malaysia and start putting this together. I think that would be a really beautiful way to, um, as a tribute to her, um, and also, I think something that I want future generation to have of her and to taste her cooking because she is legendary, uh, <laughs> and to to and she's such an amazing storyteller. And she's got this really, really amazing voice, um, very funny. Um, so I want her stories and hopefully part of that voice to be captured uh, along with her cooking and her, her dishes. Do you think as a society we we introduce death early enough to our children um, and do we talk about death enough? I don't think near enough. I think that um, we are very protective <laughs> over kids around death and grief and, and any anything that is um, traumatic and I think that we're doing them a disfavour. Um, I think that is such a big part of life and we really need to equip children and young people around death and dying and I think a big part of it is because we protect ourselves from it um, and that so much healing and strength can come from talking about the most painful things including death and dying. Uh, and that yeah. and that must be some of the work that you do in you know, your work as a trauma counsellor. So with the migrant and refugee experience, death must be part and parcel of their everyday lived experience. Absolutely. Um, especially people who have been impacted by trauma, whether it's through violence, you know, abuse growing up, um, or the refugee journey where they were persecuted, where violence and death was such a, such a big part of their life. And I think for a lot of families um, that I work with, and this is obviously a very common story with, with a lot of migrant um, families through the generation, is we often have parents who have been through and been impacted by trauma trying to protect their own children from it. So they sort of kind of sealed off that, that story, you know, and park it sort of deep, dark in the dungeon. And... They, in, 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 with all their best intention, thinking that that's the best way to protect the, the future generation. But we know now with intergenerational trauma and epigenetics and how trauma gets just gets passed down when we don't deal with it. So a lot of my work is really creating the safe space for people to start unpacking the past trauma and, and giving people the tools. And, and that's such an important part of recovery. And this is not something that is unique to, you know, migrant communities or refugee communities. Your average Australian family has, has a huge history of trauma from the convict, uh, history from war, um, and we know that. Um, and we know that our First Nation people have intergenerational trauma that was impacted by colonisation. So it is something that touches many families. And I think that in many ways, because we're so uncomfortable talking about trauma, death and dying becomes very much part of that difficulty. 
Um, and I think we are definitely getting better at that. Uh, but there's just a lot more we can do. And and just having conversation and normalising those kind of conversation, I think it's a really big part of um, us being more comfortable uh, talking about it. You're right about migrants and refugees wanting to put the past behind them, if you like. Um, this is a fresh start. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's quite normal, isn't it, to kind of say, that was me and my identity before, but now I'm in a place where I can go forward. Yeah, look, I think it's very, very human, you know, I think very human response. But I think when we have, when part of that starting new life means that we have to tuck away that lived experience, that's when it becomes problematic. Because until we deal with that trauma, it will continue to have that impact on us and, and on mental health, physical health and that sort of stuff. It also impacts relationships uh, going down the track. And I think that we can start anew, but part of that starting anew is to be able to deal with our past and that it can be done. You know, people can go on and and live really, really beautiful lives. Um, But we have to uh, be supported, actually, because we can't do this on our own. You know, we need the support system to, to help us do this. And... And I've worked with young people where parents um, start to do that. And the the power, the transformative power of each generation taking responsibility, dealing with their own trauma, uh, it just means that it opens up opportunity for the next generation to, to, to be less impacted. But also then if they are, then it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to get support and get help. And I think that we need to to get better at doing that and be more comfortable at doing that. So you mentioned that your daughter um, was with you throughout the process, uh, throughout the 12 days and the decision to take the oxygen mask from mum's face mm-hmm. and say goodbye to her and allow her to go. How old was she? So Jess would have been 16, 15, 16. So it's a very, uh, it's an age where, you know, the impact of such a powerful display of life and death yeah, yeah. would have really been so strong. How did she, how did she deal with that? How did you and her talk through that trauma? Was it trauma? It is kind of trauma, but also it is Jessie's first encounter up close and personal with death and dying. And that moment where we say goodbye to to mum and her papa, whom she was really, really close to, the first thing that Jessie came to me and said is, Mum, don't you worry, I've got your back. Like I think in that moment I understood that she understood what 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 I was doing. And I was just, yeah, it was very, very emotional moment. And I think that was so important for Jess to be there because that's life. That is so important. And, and to know that, yeah, each generation we have that responsibility, but we need to talk about what we want with our family, you know, and I think that conversation is so important. And it doesn't, I know it's scary to have this conversation, but it actually really brings us closer 
Um, and I know now that my kids are very clear about how I feel and what I want. Um, and that, that clarity was just there, you know, like I think um, for, for Jesse, that, that is a, a moment in time where, where she's able to be, to be so close to it and to understand it and to, to, to feel the whole range of emotion that comes with losing someone close. So I'm going to take you back a little bit because you've had your own experience with near death um, when you were bringing, you know, a life into being. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So that was, um, so Jesse. <laughs> I was pregnant um, with Jesse and Jesse's 20 now. So this goes back that, that long ago now. Um, I, well, I was sort of about two, well, 38 weeks um, and had just sort of gone home with a massive headache um, and realised that I had, you know, um, preeclampsia. So very, very high blood pressure and was rushed to hospital. And because I had um, preeclampsia and it was my first birth, um, things got very, very um, frantic and messy. And so Jess um, was born very, very quickly. So it was a very super quick birth. I think everything happened within an hour. And because it was very um, fast delivery and because I had very high blood pressure and which causes retained placenta, I have massive blood loss. So I remember Jesse being born and holding Jesse in my arms and then starting to feel really dizzy. And I sort of realized that I am not feeling very well. I remember passing Jesse to someone and then pass out. And in the middle of that, just, just before I lost consciousness, I just remember the room suddenly filled with a rush of people, doctors, nurses. Um, and then I sort of pass, passed out and lost consciousness. And then what happened was I started spinning. It's as if I was all of me. All of my consciousness was in this tiny little dot and I was spinning and then snap. There was a clear snap and I was just floating. It was kind of white around me. It was like I was a little star in the space just floating and in that moment I realized I had died. And it was so beautiful, it was so peaceful. It's like all of me was in this tiny little dot. And I don't know how long I was floating in this place for bliss. And I have never experienced that level of bliss again. And I was floating there and then I suddenly remembered that I had just given birth to my baby. And suddenly the rush of, oh my God, I can't leave my baby without a mother. I had to get back to her. And it was just this sort of, you know, disorienting thing. And, but I remember thinking to myself at that moment, I wonder if I ever made it back, whether I'll remember this. And 
And the next moment, I woke up in the hospital really, really unwell. So I had lost nearly four liters of blood. They tried for many hours to try and stop the bleeding, couldn't, um, but eventually managed. And I woke up in the hospital very, very sick. I could barely move and barely walk. But the moment that I woke up, I remembered everything. And it just was a life-changing moment, and it continued to be. And the last 20 years, I feel like I'm on borrowed time. I feel like I had a second chance to... Um, I came back because I could not leave my newborn child. You know, that maternal instinct was clearly so strong and so powerful. Um, and there I was so blissed out. <laughs> I could stay there forever. So I sort of came back and had this second chance in life. And I feel it has changed the way I think about dying. So you're no longer afraid of dying? Yeah, I, I wasn't. I'm not sure if I was afraid of dying, but I certainly didn't understand, you know, um, having that sort of lived experience definitely brought a completely different dimension to um, to to my understanding of, of dying and death and it's something that I'm not afraid of. And I think that it's definitely made me more appreciative of life and, and living. And, um, yeah, and it's sort of, it's, it's given me a spaciousness around the relationship between life and death, I think, um, that is not a clear-cut black and white thing that that is a continuum um, and I think that's a it's a beautiful thing how, how did other people react to that you know complete death experience where they'd almost lost you and then you were back yeah um, terrifying <laughs> so my mother was actually in Perth at that time because you know they'd come to to be with me and to do the confinement thing and um, and I had planned a home birth it was all very terrifying for everybody um, but I realized that when I wanted to talk about that experience people had difficulty people couldn't believe it and I was like oh no you were just on gas or you know something but I, I sort of just kept it, it was a very sacred experience for me. And even though other people couldn't understand it, um, it was just there. It was my reality and it was my experience. And I had sort of written about it um, after, afterwards. And it's just something that's very, very real and very sacred to me. And I have not shared that story very often. And I had just given birth given life to to my child and that moment and we know that through history that so many women die during childbirth um, and I think that it is an important part of us understanding life dying and death um, and I feel really really blessed to have had that experience to be able to have to come back and to be able to raise you know, Jesse and then had, went on and had another another son. Um, yeah, and it was a it was a really really beautiful um, one of the most beautiful experiences I will ever have. 
Did, do you think the people treated you differently? At that point in time, very, very few people. In fact, no one could understand that experience. So it wasn't probably taken very seriously. Um, I think they were obviously um, understood how close I was to dying. Um, but, you know, then I became a mom, you know, so that the excitement of all of that and the, the, the craziness of that took over. My mother, especially, um, it was traumatic for her because she had worried the minute I had decided to have a home birth. She tried really hard and I was my mother's daughter. I was incredibly determined and stubborn. And I know that that would have been a very, very traumatic experience for her. Um, and she continued to remind me for many years later. So could you ever talk to her about that moment of bliss? I don't think I did. I don't think I did. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and because I speak to my mom in my mother tongue in, in Hokkien, and it was very hard, you know, it's sort of my Hokkien is not, not terribly sophisticated. Um, it was very hard. And I think I realised how traumatic it was for her that I couldn't really, you know, couldn't really go there. Um, but I wish I had. I wish I had told her more about how blissful it was. And I think in many ways, mum... Mum was very spiritual, so she is someone who isn't afraid of dying or death because she had always believed that that place after death was a peaceful place, was something that she had thought a lot about during her life. And she had a very, she had a life full of suffering and, and trauma. So she would dream about going to the special place after death where the suffering would end. And I think that in many ways, she and I sort of shared that, you know, um, and I very much believe that she, um, she is in a better place. Yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about that spirituality and the rituals and the traditions and people's beliefs and how people might say, oh, you know, I don't believe in, anything after life and I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic and yet at the moment when people are faced with their mortality their own mortality spirituality maybe religion becomes actually quite an important thing I mean do you do you, do you find that in the in the work that you do with people the talks that you have and also in your own life experience, that spirituality is something that we revisit over and over again as we go through life cycle. Mm. Yeah, look, that's a is a very very big question, isn't it? I mean, and and I I use spirituality because I think that it it's something that everybody has access to. Um, it's an essence. It's a belief. Um, it's faith. You know, um, and you don't have to be religious. You don't have to have a faith to have access to that. You know, it's it's all around us. It's the universe. You know, um, and I I know people who don't have a religion but uh, have have special connection. You know, a spirituality could be your connection to earth. Could be your connection to forests, to the river. Um, and I think that we need to have a much more expansive 
understanding of spirituality. It's something that we find peace in. And that place is what people call on in time of crisis, in that moment of, of dying. I think we call on what, what gives us peace and whatever that, that means different thing. It feels like different thing to different people. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it's that moment of, of holding on to something that gives us comfort and faith, whatever that, that might be. And it doesn't necessarily have to be religion or, or faith. So in a modern world where we, we've, in some ways, banished death, you know, we all live longer, we live younger, 40 is the new 20. <laughs> <laughs> How does spirituality and an acceptance of death fit into that, do you think? You know, we've got great opportunity with longevity, but also with a lot more knowledge and understanding or access to understanding. I think that we've got opportunities to live life more meaningfully. And with that, have opportunity to develop our understanding and choices and agency and autonomy around death and dying. And that is so important um, for women to have choices around how they want to give birth and how they want to, you know, all of that, pregnancy, birth, childbirth. Um, I think everyone needs to have autonomy and agency around choices around how we die. And that's very, very important. And I think we're just beginning to have those kind of conversations. Um, with prolonged um, longevity, we just means that we uh, have a much longer time to contend with our bodies, you know, and how we, how we live in this body, uh, how we look after this body, how we heal this body, how we take care of this body. I think all of that's part and parcel of, of that bigger conversation around death and dying. Do you think that we devote any of that energy to talking about mental health in regards to our own mortality or, you know, the people around us that we love and lose? No, I think that that's a big, kind of big white elephant in the room <laughs> in many cases. I think that the for a lot of people, the idea of death and dying um, whether it's experience as a loss or, um, you know, protecting other people from our own illness, um, ill health or death is something that we as a society don't navigate really well. And it's a big part of mental health. Um, and I think the more we are able to talk about the distress that we feel every day, and, and have ways to, to, um, to manage that better, you know, in terms of, of recovery, in terms of healing, in terms of actually navigating that life will throw us curveballs that we don't expect and that we can cope with it, you know, just like we can cope with unexpected death, we can cope with unexpected ill health, whether it's mental or physical, um, and that we can get through it. We just need to have the support system in place that we need and we can reach out for help. And that's really important. And I think as a society, everyone has a role to play, you know, um, as a family member, as a parent, as a child, as a friend, a colleague. 
I think the more we can have conversations like that and normalize that, you know, so that we don't feel uncomfortable broaching that topic, I think we'll be better off for it. Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people, and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred-Cigar.